You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. Graphic and disturbing testimony at the Miles Gray inquest today. VPD officers describing in detail the actions they took to subdue Gray almost eight years ago. And as Amadagahi reports, one officer made a stunning admission on the stand today. The Vancouver police officers attempting to arrest Miles Gray have testified to using significant force to subdue him. Constable Hardeep Sahota delivering four to five baton strikes. Constable Corey Folkstad telling the jury at one point he punched Gray in the face as many times as he could, as hard as he could. Constable Eric Bursnick said he pepper sprayed, bear hugged, and at least twice had Gray in a vascular neck restraint and delivered two to three baton strikes. Constable Joshua Wong testified to attempting a hobble, delivering up to five knee strikes, two to three close hand blows to the face, a headlock, up to five baton strikes to Gray's left arm, and pepper spray to his face. Constable Nick Thompson testified he kicked Gray's legs five times, delivered baton strikes to his lower legs and to his wrist. It was my objective to break his wrist to stop him from hurting us. It didn't phase him at all, Thompson said to the jury. There wasn't even an ouch. The officers appear to have been driven by a belief that this fellow was a danger to them. It doesn't appear on the evidence of the majority of the police that he did anything aggressive until after he was pepper sprayed. Seventeen, we got him. Have the mail in custody. Charlie, five one copy. And seventeen, code three HS. Mail's unconscious. He's not responding. Gray died at the scene, having suffered severe injuries. Police were called. On August 13, 2015, after witnesses saw a man acting erratically and spray a woman with a garden hose, Gray was unarmed, shirtless, and shoeless. Policing isn't soldiering. And unfortunately, Miles lost his life in such a tragic way that ripped the family in part, destroyed a town. Of the seven constables involved in the physical altercation, only one has testified to making notes after the incident. Constable Joshua Wong told the inquest, I was told by a senior member who was acting as part of the union not to make notes. Ian Donaldson, Gray's family lawyer, then asked him, you decided to follow instructions from the union rather than what you knew was VPD policy? To that, Constable Joshua Wong answered, that is correct. Constable Wong was later asked by a member of the jury why he thinks a senior member of the police union would ask him not to take notes of the incident immediately after it happened, to which he answered that he did not know why and remembered thinking that it was very odd at the time. Amadagahi, Global News. Well, we asked Vancouver's police chief for his thoughts on the testimony today and whether the police union should be advising its members not to take notes after a major incident. Well, we have policy on note-taking, and officers uh, know what that policy is. So that's all I'm going to say on that. I'm not going to influence the uh, inquest in any way. Now, a frightening midday shooting in downtown New Westminster this week has heightened concerns about public safety. As Janet Brown reports, the city's police department says it is seeing a spike in crime and is working on a plan of action to tackle it. The shooting Tuesday at noon near the courthouse at Alexander and Carnarvon streets is being called unacceptable by New Westminster police. People are, have a sense of fear. They're, they're afraid to go in the downtown area. A suspect approached a group of people, pointed a gun in their direction and repeatedly fired at the group before fleeing. 
One man was taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Two suspects were arrested near Royal Columbian Hospital. Police say in light of this and other recent crimes in the downtown core, they're working on a plan of action. We are going to do everything we need to do to restore your safety. We're going to reallocate resources, we're going to increase patrols, and we're going to look at all the different options available to us to restore safety in the downtown area. Mayor Patrick Johnston says the violence is not unique to his city. People are concerned about violence when they see violence in their community, and uh, it's unusual for us to have that kind of violence here, but um, it's a symptom of, of challenges that the city is facing and that the region is facing. Councillor Daniel Fontaine with New West Progressives lives downtown and says he's even feeling unsafe these days. This is not the city that I want. I want a city where people can feel free to walk down our streets, to sit on the patios, to enjoy a cup of coffee and not worried about some some random person coming out with a knife or a gun and starting to attack them. We asked people where the shooting took place, how they're feeling. Definitely nervous because I don't really expect gun violence that much in this country. It's kind of freaked me out a bit walking at nighttime nowadays. As long as you have a fear of crime and you don't want to get out because of crime, you're already a victim of crime. We hear you. We hear that there's those, those feelings in the community. But um, I do have faith that the police can come up with a plan to help address the worst part of the violence, and we can work together to solve this. Police say charges could be laid in connection with the shooting. Janet Brown, Global News. Burnaby RCMP have released photos of a man suspected in the unprovoked assaults of three people, including an 89-year-old woman. Police say it happened at about 9.30 this morning at Metrotown. The elderly woman was walking through the mall when a suspect shoved her to the ground and walked away. She was taken to hospital, luckily not seriously injured. The suspect is described as 5 feet 7 with a medium build. He was wearing a black jacket with white stripes and a green camouflage baseball cap. Burnaby RCMP say the suspect assaulted two other people within minutes of the attack on the woman. And they're asking those victims and anyone else with any information on this to contact them. And on the threat of public safety, the issue of understaffing in the RCMP and how to ramp up recruitment was front and center in the legislature again today. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the debate. Uh, Keith, there's actually concern now that the shortage could get even worse. Yeah, so again, public safety front and center in the question period today, kind of fitting. We began the week in question period with a focus on public safety. We're ending the week in, in question period with a focus on public safety. A bit of a twist today. We got some new information on an issue that's been bandied about for some time under questioning from B new B.C. Conservative leader John Rustad, Solicitor General Mike Farmworth, for the first time providing a, a, a detailed number of how many vacancies we're looking at for provincial RCMP positions and disclosing again for the first time that uh, his ministry has been working with the federal government to to fill those vacancies. Here is a bit of what we heard in question period today. Let's face reality. BC is short more than 400 RCMP officers, and the soft number is closer to 1,500. But with 400 plus retiring annually, the RCMP recruitment is just not keeping up. Filling positions and burning out officers will be a growing problem. And I know the RCMP are doing the best they can for us in this province. But the police in BC need help. They need help from this government. I can tell you that when it comes to the provincial policing line, that, uh, that the, their number of vacancies, hard vacancies, not soft vacancies, is about 277. Uh, that's why we put in place the funding that we did to fill those vacancies. And I can tell you it's not a question of the province having to go and ask for those vacancies to be filled. Um, 
The, uh, those are done by the, uh, with the federal government, and I can tell you that my ministry has already been working with the, uh, the RCMP uh, in terms of prioritizing areas for the provincial uh, business line. I have Labor shortages everywhere, Keith. So next week is a big week for the Surrey Police Service mm -hmm. decision. Does this shed any light on what might happen? Well, you know, this is a bit like tea leave reading, you know, what, looking at clues here. So I note that every time Mike Farmworth and the House are in scrums with reporters, when he's asked about the RCMP, the problems associated with the RCMP rise to the fore. That seems to dominate the conversation of things like vacancies not being filled. He's gone out of the way to point out he's not going to sign off on any model that just takes RCMP resources from other jurisdictions and puts them into Surrey to fulfill demand there. Uh, another thing I want to throw into the mix here, a, a, a Surrey MLA approached me this week and led me to his office and gave me a copy of this uh, Toronto Globe and Mail editorial uh, published recently. It calls for the abolishment of the RCMP, saying the culture is broken, as was disclosed or revealed in the Nova Scotia sh uh, shooting inquiry. So throw that into the mix for consideration. Not sure which way it's going to go. As you say, so if we, what we do know, the decision is going to be announced next week. But every time Mike Farmer talks about the RCMP, uh, negative things seem to come out. All right, we'll see what happens next week then. Keith, thank you. Well, dozens of people gathered to remember and celebrate the short life of Ethan Bestplug in Surrey's Holland Park this afternoon. The Surrey teenager was fatally stabbed last week during an altercation on a transit bus. Since then, Ethan's loved ones have been describing him as a caring, thoughtful and gentle young man whose life ended too soon. Ethan's mom now hoping his death will lead to change. I just hope that his memory carries on and there's change and that people can learn from these kinds of acts and just just be kind, show love. 20-year-old Caden Brady Robert Mintenko has been arrested and charged with murder in connection to the fatal stabbing. Vancouver firefighters made quick work of a fire on Kiefer Street in Chinatown. Fire crews say the fire in the high-rise was contained to a single unit. They say no one was injured and a cause has not yet been determined. The building's sprinklers were activated, preventing the flames from spreading. A warning, our next story contains details many people will find disturbing. Another First Nation in B.C. is reporting the discovery of unmarked graves. The Shishalt Nation says a ground-penetrating radar search of the grounds of the St. Augustine Residential School site in Shishalt has located the unmarked graves of 40 children. Catherine Urquhart has the details. In a videotaped news release, Shishal Nation has announced findings of a recent investigation. They say ground-penetrating radar has identified numerous unmarked graves on and near the grounds of St. Augustine's residential school. The GPR identifies 40 unmarked children's graves, shallow graves, only large enough for the young bodies to lay in the fetal position. The first residential school in Seashelt opened in 1904. After it burned down, a second school was built, which closed in 1975. Shishel Nation's announcement follows many others, beginning with Dekemluk's Tshwetmik First Nation. 
In 2021, they announced discovery of more than 200 suspected unmarked graves near the Kamloops Indian Residential School. We've been working with the federal government. Uh, Minister Miller and I have collaborated on providing funding and to also work with them on the response, the cultural response, the emotional, psychological response. Further details are not being released and the nation has requested privacy. I understand the curiosity, but for now we want to pause and stand still and reflect. For the children we have found, we are going to let them rest right now. This entire process has shaken me to the core. Shishal Nation says those wishing to support them can do so by wearing an orange shirt, flying flags at half-staff, and by cherishing moments with their children and families. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And of course, we understand these stories can be triggering for some viewers. So there is help for residential school survivors and their families at a 24-hour crisis line, 1-800-721-0066. Well, if the smell of cannabis is especially strong in the West End today, take a look at your calendar. Happy for 20. That's right, it's April 20th, and the first full-fledged in-person 420 since the pandemic is being held at Sunset Beach. How it's not quite the pot party of pre-legalization days, next on the NewsHour. BC's wine industry is projecting 50% fewer wine grapes this year. We'll tell you why and the potential impact a little later on the NewsHour tonight. Plus, a major port expansion approved in BC. What the Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project will mean for the province. Still to come tonight. Right now, though, in past years, Vancouver 420 organizers could be guaranteed high turnouts for their events often in the tens of thousands, but not this year. Numbers were down for a number of reasons, including the weather. As Kamal Karmali found out, though, those who did show up just rolled with it. Even cloudy skies <laughs> couldn't dampen the spark for Vancouver's 420 event. This year, a joint affair between the usual hot spot at Sunset Beach the crowd out here is very friendly, very, very nice. Everybody's in good spirits. And the new budding location at Thornton Park near Science World, where the scale of the event reached a new high, 63 pounds and 29 feet long. We wanted to do something that was exciting and shareable. So let's roll the world's largest joint. As many as 200 vendors lined the park at Sunset Beach, both events going ahead without getting the green light from the Vancouver Pork Board. We're still trying to figure out why it's a protest event at all. I mean, cannabis was fully legalized across Canada back in 2018, and uh, uh, the protesters uh, still seem to want to have this unsanctioned and unpermitted event. The board closed the Aquatic Centre and Sunset Beach washrooms as a result. Attendance was noticeably low this year. Has the weather dampened business at all? It's yeah, a little bit, a little bit, but you know, when people want to get high, they don't care about the weather. Or, according to some vendors, it could do with the organizers being unprepared. It's not very organized, you know. It's like we had a first aid booth here, which was supposed to be designated to that, and now it's just a smoke pit. And, you know, there's not really... Um, staff going around with marked, you know, vests for making sure. It's more chaotic than it's ever been this year, for sure. Just growing pains. You know, we're not going to say that we've done perfect, but I think we've done a really, really good job.
but some made sure to show up and light up with a purpose. Arguing cannabis is still too expensive for BC's most vulnerable populations. For others, though, it's a celebration. The weather is much greater in Jamaica than here, right? But we're still out here trying to do our best. You know what I'm saying? The Pork Board says for a light affair, the stakes are still pretty high, with taxpayers having to foot the bill for the cleanup. But others argue it's an annual tradition that shouldn't have to be put out anytime soon. Kamal Karamali, Global News. BC First Nations are asking to be let into the lucrative cannabis market. The BC, or pardon me, the First Nations Leadership Council says it wants Canada's pot laws updated to reflect the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The council says First Nations people face significant barriers to access the benefits of legalization in their territories, such as marketing, growing, and taxation revenue. They say cannabis legalization was done without Indigenous consultation or any recognition of their unique needs. When Williams Lake First Nation first started their cannabis enterprises, uh, we operated a gray market retail store. Um, and ultimately, what we find in the gray market is that it's difficult to get a bank account, it's difficult to get proper insurance, um, and ultimately, we don't know whether the product is being tested and whether it's safe for the community. The First Nations also worry that the gray market where they've had to operate often involves organized crime and they want their operations to be fully legal. Coming up, a symbol of pride. Somebody entered the property, forced my window open and ripped it down. The transgender flag taken from a Burnaby man's home. And up next, an iconic Canadian retailer under scrutiny for breaking BC's privacy laws. Still significant delays from North Vancouver to the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge tonight after clearing a much earlier crash at the south end. Traffic is gridlocked on every route. Just avoid it for now. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today and get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Canadian Tire broke provincial privacy laws. That's the finding of BC's privacy commissioner after an investigation into facial recognition technology at four of the stores. As Richard Zussman reports, the images were collected to help identify shoplifters, but it was done without consent from shoppers. Every time you walk into a Canadian Tire, it's clear you're on camera. But for three years, the retailer was doing a lot more than just record video. They were capturing the images of shoppers as they were coming uh, through their doors, uh, reducing those to a, a template and comparing those against a database to see if uh, any one of us entering the store were a potential shoplifter or committing fraud. It's that action that has been deemed illegal by BC's Privacy and Information Commissioner. Michael McAvoy releasing his investigation Thursday, finding four Canadian tire stores in BC use the technology without consent. The company ultimately admitted to facial recognition in 12 locations in total. They stopped the practice, dismantled the gear once they were notified they were under investigation. Not only discontinued the use, but made sure that the uh, images that were gathered of, of you and I and, and uh, every customer were securely destroyed. In a statement, Canadian Tire says facial recognition technology was not used in any corporate-owned stores or offices. 
The Privacy Commissioner also looked at other Canadian retailers and it found only Canadian Tire was using the technology. This investigation serves as a bit of a, a reminder to retailers that this is not an area you want to go down uh, lightly. And even though the Privacy Commissioner found Canadian Tire broke privacy laws, they don't face any financial penalties. The reason why? The commissioner doesn't actually have the power to fine. That's something that I have called for, that in fact a committee of the legislature has called for. Government has yet to act on that. The commissioner is also calling on the province to amend the Personal Information Protection Act to require organizations to notify the privacy commissioner's office before deploying facial recognition. So of course, we'll continue to, to monitor and review and see if there's any strengthening that does need to happen. But it's important that people know their information is being protected. And even though the cameras are still up, the commitment is none of these videos are being used with facial recognition. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. A Burnaby man is devastated after someone stole the transgender pride flag from his home. As Jennifer Palmer reports, the symbol of trans diversity and rights had an even deeper meaning for the owner. There's a significance in, in how many trans people this particular flag inspired. This transgender pride flag has been a part of Lita Stray's life for more than 20 years. The blue bordering on, on both sides is the masculine, the pink being the feminine, and then the white in the middle for all of our, you know, non-binary and gender variant. But this beloved flag was stolen from Lita's Capitol Hill area home in Burnaby earlier this week. He found it missing from its usual spot in the window Wednesday afternoon. I was really resigned to this idea like, uh-oh, somebody decided they didn't like it. And then, you know, all the other emotions come into it, the anger, the fear, the confusion. Um, for me, I'm just a person. The flag holds heartfelt and historical importance to Lita. It was a sign of strength during his transition journey, and it was one of the first transgender pride flags to be bought in Vancouver. It's traveled the world with him, and in 2019, he went to New York for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, where he met with the flag's creator, Monica Helms, who signed it. I'm really hoping that somebody's either seen it or the person who took it uh, realizes what they've taken, because I don't think they realized what historical value this item had. Lita isn't letting this get him down. Within hours of the flag disappearing, they bought a new flag and hung it up. The general rule in my world is that you can respect my existence or you can expect my resistance. Lita doesn't know who took the flag and isn't contacting the police. He has spoken with various delivery companies who were at his home the day it went missing to see if drivers saw anything. He just wants the flag back, no questions asked. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Up next, new ammunition for critics of BC's controversial wolf kill. These poor wolves, you could see that they must have suffered before they died. What just released photos reveal and why animal rights advocates say they still don't show the full picture. Plus, day two of Canada's public service strike. Wages are front and centre, but there's another contentious issue. One born out of the pandemic.
Traffic is moving pretty well both ways across the Patello Bridge, but watch out for northbound lane closures later tonight from 7 to 10 p.m. for ongoing construction. Integra Tire is proud to serve the communities they are part of. Contact your local dealer today and get up to $100 in tire rebates. Integra Tire, truly local. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. It's a labor dispute playing out on the national stage as public service workers stage day two of a full-blown strike. And while wages are a major sticking point, there's another contentious issue between the workers and the federal government. As Global's Claudia Van Emmerich reports, it's one not seen in past labor disputes. They are fighting for a new collective agreement, one which includes better wages and working conditions, and something else, the ability to work from home. Remote work and telework has been proven to be very productive. I think uh, we are able to do our jobs remotely. Something many of the federal public servants have been doing for three years now, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. But in January, the Treasury Board of Canada mandated that federal employees come into the office two days a week or 40% of the time. And that is a big point of contention between the two sides. We're looking to have that clarified in our collective agreement so that we have some say in whether we come into the office or not, um, how many hours we come in, where we come in, um, that sort of thing. While remote work wasn't typically part of labour negotiations pre-pandemic, it's something labour lawyers expect to see more and more of. We're in a bit of a state of flux where we're trying to make decisions and work together without something being in a written contract. Johnson says this one may not work in the government's favour, having allowed remote work to go on for this long already, and in a way establishing it as a term of employment. It's not a COVID thing anymore. It's been months past COVID. And so the longer that goes on, the more employees have the right to say, it's become a de facto term of my employment. <laughs> Back on the picket line, the consensus is remote work is the way of the future and the union is not willing to back down on this one. The federal government needs to step up and, and realize that because we will lose people, our younger generation that has options. They don't get the kind of working conditions that they're expecting or that they can get from another department or another area. Our, our workforce is going to shrink. Claudia Van Emmer, Global News, Kelowna. A major announcement today from the federal government on a controversial BC industrial project. We are announcing approval of the RBT2 project subject to 373 legally binding conditions. The Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project in Delta has faced scrutiny over claims it would cause irreparable harm to the environment. But the federal government says strict measures have been put in place to ensure protection of wildlife, including orcas and salmon requirement for the proponent to avoid, mitigate, and fully offset effects to fish and fish habitat, and develop a follow-up program to monitor any population changes to the region's salmon as a result of the project. This is not a decision that was taken lightly. This conclusion was made following a robust and science-based environmental assessment conducted by an independent review panel. The government says B.C. ports are set to reach their limits within a decade, and this $3.5 billion expansion will help avoid significant supply chain issues and impacts to the economy. The project will increase the port's capacity by 50% and is expected to create 1,500 direct and 15,000 indirect jobs once it's built. 
a warning now about our next story. Some of the images in this next report might be disturbing. After years of demands from animal rights activists, the B.C. government has finally released pictures of its controversial wolf cull program. But critics say they might not tell the full story. Paul Johnson reports. These pictures are extremely hard to look at. It's heartbreaking. Animal rights lawyer Rebecca Breeder and her client Pacific Wild spent years trying to compel the B.C. government to release pictures of its controversial wolf kill program. This week, they got a series of several dozen photos documenting what had happened to some of the interior wolf packs that have been killed from helicopters over the past few years. The need to see these pictures is that the public, who is essentially funding this wolf cult program, has the absolute right to know what the government is doing with our own money. Breeder says the pictures confirm her belief that the program is inhumane. Many of them show wolves that died from what appears to have been a single headshot but others appear to show fatal shots to the chest and neck. Breeder says that means they may have suffered before dying. These gunshot wounds are not straight gunshots to the head. The Ministry of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship told Global News the program is meant to help preserve struggling caribou herds and that gunshots, even to the chest, are considered to be a humane method of taking out wolves. While their decision to release the pictures is an act of transparency, it's not so far mollified critics who say they think there are likely more pictures that tell a different story. And this whole problem with the wolves, uh, that's a program that needs to be audited. Renowned animal welfare expert Temple Grandin says the kind of independent audits that are now standard in the meat industry are the only way the program can be verified as humane. So far, the B.C. government has not had an audit of the program, nor announced an intention to do so. If the government truly believes that what it is doing in killing hundreds of wolves from helicopters is necessary and humane, then why not have a third-party inspector or auditor confirm the same? Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, it may not feel like it, but summer is just around the corner. And if you plan to visit three popular B.C. parks, you'll need to make a reservation. B.C.'s free day-use program is coming back into effect starting May 6th. Outdoor enthusiasts who want to visit Joffrey Lakes Provincial Park will need to reserve a pass. As of June 14th, if you want to visit Golden Ears Park and Garibaldi Park during peak hours, you will also need a pass. Those passes are available online at bcparks.ca slash reservations and can be reserved at 7 a.m. two days before your planned trip. Confidence in routine childhood vaccinations has declined since the pandemic. That's according to a new study. The report by UNICEF indicates confidence in vaccinations against diseases, including measles, polio and tetanus, declined in 52 out of 55 countries. In Canada, we saw an 8% drop in confidence over the last three years, from 90 down to 82%. And while the majority of Canadians still support childhood vaccinations, infectious disease experts say 82% is not enough to achieve a comfortable herd immunity level against preventable childhood illnesses. Still to come, a summer road trip on two feet. We're gonna start here in Revelstoke. Go all the way down 
here to Victoria. The BC man about to embark on a marathon of marathons. Plus. The, the projection of modeling uh, is having us prepare for the worst. A rough winter for BC's wine region. Why things don't look good for this year's grapes. It's been a brutal winter for the Okanagan wine industry and it's going to have a big impact on production. A report by Wine Growers BC is projecting a drop in production of as much as 56%. The report says the region's grapevines were hit hard by a short cold snap last December that took temperatures down to minus 20. BC Wine Growers says ongoing extreme weather events could lead to some significant changes in the industry. I think indicative of climate change, and uh, we've been worried about this for a while. Climate change is an effect on wineries and, and, and the vineyards specifically. In the worst case scenario, entire plots of vines might need to be pulled up and replaced with the new vines not producing for three to four years. Experts say it will be a few weeks yet before the full extent of the damage is known. Well, let's hope not. All right, let's bring in Christy Gordon now with a look at the weather forecast. And better uh, weather is on the way, Christy. Yes, so some good news for those of you in the southern interior as well for us here. You know, I just wanted to quickly mention that cold snap was right before Christmas. We also uh, felt it here across the south coast. It actually killed my lilac tree. And the temperatures were actually down to about minus 32 at night. And during the day, only warmed up to about minus 26. It was a short cold snap, only about four days, but still really dramatic one. But this is what we have to look forward to. I thought I would start it off. It's still days away, but overall looks like the trend is going to be for warmer, more, uh, drier weather next week. So potentially into the 20s come late in the week for us in Metro Vancouver and for those of you in the southern interior, mid-20s. And it's been a tough go for us here. We've had another storm today, so winds up to 70 kilometers an hour to Wasson, uh, delays, cancellations in the ferries. We had gusts up to 94 in through the Discovery Islands, so that's just off the coast of Victoria. And then look at Solander Island, 159. There are some reports that it reached 160. That's like a Category 2 hurricane strength wind. So it was a stormy day and evening, that's for sure. And it's all because of this low pressure center. It really sucks that air towards the low pressure center. And that's why we see those strong winds. Bit of a break in our action tomorrow. And this next system is going to drive in just in time for our weekend. It's weakening and it's not that well organized. So Saturday's not going to be a total soaker, but nonetheless, it's going to be cloudy and unsettled again for a weekend. So there's your Friday, everyone. Those of you in the southern interior will catch some breaks of blue sky, but the south coast mainly cloudy 30 to 40 percent chance of showers is all we have for much of metro vancouver but from maple ridge out through the fraser valley about a 60 percent chance of showers for you tomorrow and there's your weekend so not too bad saturday but remaining cool and unsettled well below seasonal for sure but a big warm-up in store for us potentially next week so really looking forward to that tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from crescent beach my beloved hometown looking towards burnaby a crazy uh, towering cumulus producing very intense rain that was from yesterday and another shot of one in Burnaby Lake calling class and I had to share too Sophie just because the crazy cloud photos they just get me every time and I have a hard time deciding which one I prefer. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you Christy. All right Squire is here now. Good start for the Canucks in the playoffs. Yes. Get excited people. I but know. <laughs> well I mean but get can, excited. You can get excited. I mean the Abbotsford Canucks are the Canucks. They are a local team and they did win their 
First game in their best of three playoff series last night in front of a lot of fans and some big names as well. We have footage of it here. You can see Jim Rutherford asking Chad Kroger of Nickelback who he should trade this summer. Coaching staff is there as well. What did I'll he say? I don't know. Also, a, also ahead tonight. It's an honor for me to help them. Like it's, it, I feel blessed to do it. Still to come, 22 marathons in 22 days. The remarkable fundraising effort and why that number 22 itself is significant. Bit of a development in the SFU football saga. Yes, it's not going to end for a while, I don't think. No. There could be some court people uh, involved. Is it mm -hmm. next the month? You never know. Is that the official word, court people? I mean, it'll be <laughs> I mean, I understand what you mean. It won't be Judge Wapner, even if he, I don't even know if he's Judge still Judy. Alive. Judge Judy, Judge Wapner's no more. Okay, so SFU says it's going to hire a special advisor to study if there is a future for football. Now, SFU says the football team will not play this year at all. But this special advisor will meet with people within the athletic community, the alumni, the staff, the football community to see if there is a chance of finding a new league or whether they should stay with the original plan, which was to cancel the program altogether. I get the sense that's what the university really wants to do. But the uh, football alumni wants the team reinstated for this year so it can play a non-conference schedule, no league affiliation, with various teams from Canada and the United States. And that schedule has already been worked on, and it could be as many as nine games. We'll have to see. The uh, Canucks have fired assistant coach Jason King, who worked with three different head coaches here. He actually started with Vancouver's minor league team when it was in Utica. Then he came to the Canucks and worked with Travis Green when he was head coach, stayed on to work with Bruce Boudreaux, and stayed on to work with Rick Tockett. He also played for the Canucks for a while. For a brief time, he was on the Sedins line when it was nicknamed Two Twins and a King. Get it? <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. All right. The Abbotsford Canucks started the American Hockey League playoffs with a 3 0 win over Bakersfield last night. And that means that Abbotsford can win this series. It's a best of three tomorrow night at home. Game time is 7 o'clock. At last we checked, it was close to a sellout, maybe about 700 tickets left. So if you want to go, hurry up, buy the tickets. Spencer Martin backstopped the Canucks to the win. The defense played great in front of them. And the number one line was the line led by Nils Hoaglander. They provided most of the offense. Hoaglander has Sasser in front, takes it to the middle, he shoots, he stops, rebound, and they score! Nils Hoaglander! It couldn't have gone any better for the Abbotsford Canucks playing a home playoff game for the first time ever in front of their own fans. There's not much margin for error in a best of three series and the Canucks didn't make many errors in the opener. Spencer Martin had a relatively easy night making 21 saves for the shutout which included this disallowed goal when a Condors player pitchforked the puck into the net while Martin had the puck covered. You know you'll take the shutout anytime but I feel like I didn't really have too many chances that were uh, too dangerous, and we love that. My mindset was to come here and, and try to you know, work on my game and, and try to have a pitcher that, uh, that looks like it, it is right now, and I feel great about that. 
Abbotsford also got a goal from recently signed Max Sasson, who just finished his second season at Western Michigan. Sasson played seven regular season games and hasn't missed a stride making the jump to pro hockey. You know, coming here my first couple games, obviously it's, it's an adjustment and I'm still adjusting, right? But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was really good to get my feet under me, meet all the guys, meet all the coaching staff. And, uh, you know, I coming out and, you know, they've shown a lot of confidence in me. He has gotten better and better each game. I thought, you know, when he came to us in Winnipeg, he was uh, getting up to speed, you know, a little bit tentative and learning the league. But you could see there was, he had a willingness to make some plays and uh, he looked like he could skate in open ice. And I think uh, he's really kind of blossomed here. Game two goes Friday and if necessary, game three Sunday at Abbotsford Center. Very Delay Global Sports. It is safe to call your friends or family in Toronto tonight. They won't be upset. They won't be sad because the Leafs have rallied. It looks like they're going to tie their series with Tampa Bay. They scored in the first minute. Mitch Marner got the goal and it just was pretty much all Toronto from there. They are late in the third period. I'm going to assume the Leafs win this thing and the series will be tied going back to Tampa Bay 1-1. Boy, what a night last night at Swangard Stadium. There have been great soccer moments at Swangard over the years with the old 86ers and the Whitecaps and Canada's national team. And the TSS Rovers of Burnaby were in the preliminary round of the Canadian Championship taking on the Premier League's Valor FC out of Winnipeg. Now, TSS Rovers are League One BC, and they won this game 3-1. Matteo Pelosi had a couple of goals, make that Pelosi had a couple of goals. That's Mahia scoring there to make it 2-0. This is a Pelosi's second goal. This made it 3-0, and it was a cold night, so if you want to warm up, run to the fans. There you go. Also my grade seven sports day. That's one guard. Oh, really? Actually, the BC High School uh, Track and yeah, Field Championships, exactly. which Burnaby Central won the year I was there. Really? Also there at Swangard. <laughs> a lot so of great things at Swangard. Up next, a BC man who just took up running a couple of years ago is about to put himself to the ultimate test. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Andrew is here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11. And thanks, Sophie. We'll have more reaction on that major announcement from Ottawa on the Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project in Delta. Tonight, we'll hear from the Wilderness Committee, who are opposed to the project. And a West Vancouver man has been slapped with a $5,000 fine for feeding black bears in his backyard. Vitaly Shevchenko pleaded guilty in a North Vancouver courtroom where he was charged on the under the Wildlife Act. The BC Conservation Service began looking into the case back in 2018 after several social media posts surfaced showing Shevchenko feeding bears. We'll have all the details when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie. All right, thanks, Anne. Well, in tonight's This is BC, a man we've met before here on the News Hour, Sachin Lati, is a border services officer who's used his athletic prowess to raise money for cl causes close to his heart. Now he's about to embark on a marathon of marathons. Jada Rant has his story. Sachin Lati is training for a summer getaway that's going to look a lot different this year. He'll be exploring the province through an entirely different experience. I'm going to be running 22 marathons in 22 days. We're going to start here in Revelstoke, go all the way down here to Victoria. This is not for competition, but for charity. 
something he started a year and a half ago when he got serious about long distance running for the first time in his life. Feet issues, calf issues, like everything was swollen all the time. I was in pain pretty much every single day. The goal is to raise $50,000 for Honor House. And it's uh, a charity that supports all veterans, first responders, emergency personnel in uniform uh, with occupational stress injuries and PTSD. An organization close to his heart. The CBSA officer has had his own struggles with mental health. And it got to a point where I was just overwhelmed with a ton of stuff. And... Um, you know, depression and anxiety, they were really taking its hold on me. The reason why I selected the number 22, and it's actually quite important, there was a study in the United States in 2011 that um, found out that 22 veterans a day commit suicide. So I'm using that number to highlight it. Sutchin started ramping up for this by running nine ultra marathons last year. So the thought of running just over 42 kilometers a day for more than three straight weeks comes as just another challenge. Bro, that's going to be awesome. It's going to be so fun. I'm going to be meeting some amazing people along the way. I'm going to be talking to a ton of people. I'm going to be um, experiencing things I've never experienced in my life. This is just the next step in what Lati plans to be a very long journey for years to come, with bigger fundraising targets over much greater distances. The ultimate goal, which would be in 2025, and that is to run across Canada. It's a daunting task, but I, uh, I like setting massive goals and see what happens. Jay Durant, Global News. It is a massive goal. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, don't forget to email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Good for him. Good luck to him. Amazing. All right, Christy, give us some good news. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the good news is really next week, but I do have a, a touch of good news into tomorrow and the weekend. Friday, we only have a 30 to 40% chance of showers. Those of you in the Fraser Valley, though, a 60% chance tomorrow. Not a total soaker Saturday, but still unsettled and cool. Just a bit of a soaker. <laughs> all right, have a good night, <laughs> yeah. all.